Welcome back to the Indiscriminate News Network. I hope everybody's doing well. I wanted to do this episode a little special on the F-117 Nighthawk. Yesterday, I touched on it that there was a couple seen doing a flyover during a uh, military exercise. And it was very secretive kind of ship to me growing up or ship aircraft to me growing up. And I want to jump into it, but I wanted to share with you guys what I found. So its development was kept under wraps for 14 years, but by 1991, the F-117 Nighthawk had become a household word. Television viewers who turned on the cable news network, CNN, on the evening of January 16, 1999, were treated to a rare live preview of wars to come. Correspondents Bernard Shaw and Peter Arnett, broadcasting live from their room in Baghdad, Al Rashid's hotel were covering the state of alert of Saddam Hussein's Iraq. Five and, a, five and a half months after Iraqi forces invaded the Emirate of Kuwait and 17 hours after the deadline for the withdrawal set by the coalition opposing them, Baghdad had taken shelter beneath the strongest concentration of air defenses in the world. These included 76 surface-to-air missile launchers and nearly 3,000 anti-aircraft artillery guns. Iraq radar operators scoured the moonless skies for the first indication of approaching aircraft, but they saw nothing. We haven't heard any planes yet, noted Shaw, wondering aloud whether Boeing B-52 bombers flew so high they couldn't be heard. 650 miles due south at Kamas Mushat in southwestern Saudi Arabia, U.S. Force, US Air Force pilots of the 37th Tactical Fighter Wing were glued to CNN newscast. Two hours earlier, some of their squadron mates had departed King Kali Air Base in the first airstrike of the war. One of their targets, located on the west bank of the Tigris River, was a 370-foot Al-Kar communications tower, which transmitted CNN's television signal to the outside world. Now, as the estimated time on target approached, each man at the King Khalid kept one eye on CNN and the other on his watch, counting down. If all had gone down, go, gone according to schedule, the network would go off air now. The need for aircraft could penetrate modern air defenses had actually arisen from another Middle Eastern conflict almost 20 years earlier. In 1973, Yom, in the Yom Kippur War, Israel flown McDonnell Douglas F-4 Phantom fighters suffered heavily from Egypt's radar-guided SA-6 SAMs surface-to-air missiles, in Vietnam. Meanwhile, the U.S. Air Force was devoted more than half of its aircraft to the radar suppression rather than bombing. The first real resolution to the problems would not come until 1975. It came from the most likely source, the Advanced Project Division of the Lockheed California famous Skunk Works. Engineers there reasoned that curved surfaces reflect energy in many, in many directions, the way a soap bubble reflects sunlight. If an aircraft's surfaces were flat like the faucets of a diamond, facets of a diamond, the reflections could be limited to the direction of the designer's choice, namely away from enemy receivers. Models tested out outdoors at Lockheed's Palmade facility bore out hypothesis. Even a bird atop one of the models caused the radar cross-section to enlarge or bloom. But faceting caused handling problems for the pilots, so Skunk Works team leader Ben R. Rich 
a close associate of Lockheed's brilliant engineer Kelly Johnson and a veteran of the firm's U-2 and SR-71 spy plane programs, secured government funding of two full-sized flying prototypes under the approximately meaningless codename Have Blue. Skinned with flexible radar absorbent material, RAM, they featured sharply swept wings with two fins canted sharply inwards. Not for supersonic capability, but to avoid bouncing reflecting signals back to their source. For the same reason, doors, cockpit, canopy, the uh, the access panel, the landing gear were even jagged, sawtooth edges that had to fit perfectly flush when closed. The mere reflection of the pilot's helmet would outshine the rest of the plane put together, so the canopy was given a transparent coating to render it impenetrable to radar. Similarly, because modern radars can look down on engines and lets them bounce returns off the highly reflective compressor braids. The two engine inlets were covered with a fine radar opaque mesh, screw heads that were redesigned because at one point just three screws had been insufficiently tightened to cause the jet's RCS to bloom. Radar, however, is not the only popular method of aircraft detection. To reduce their vulnerability the heat to, to heat-seeking missiles, the prototypes use a slit-like exhaust shielded from beneath by a wide, flat platypus tail. Exhaust emerged in cool, diffused fans rather than hot, concentrated streams. The canted fans were also intended to screen the engine exhaust from the enemy fighters looking down from above. The prototypes were shipped to the top-secret facility at Groom Lake. In the Switzerland-sized Nellis Air Force Base north, uh, north of Las Vegas, home to both the U-2 and SR-71 testing programs, as well as the Red Hat Squadron. Top-secret stable of captured MiG fighters, Groom Lake was the natural choice for the Air Force's newest black top-secret program. The first prototype flew early 1978. Naturally unstable made it unworthy only by virtue of computerized quadruple-redundant fly-by-wire controls. It exhibited rapid speed loss in nose-up altitudes, a high landing speed, and a high sink rate. These problems ultimately proved it undoing when Lockheed test pilot Bill Park bounced it off the ground, jamming the right gear halfway up. Unlabeled to land or even belly in, he burned off the excess fuel and ejected at 10,000 feet over the Nevada desert. The prototype was destroyed and Park, uninjured, oh, injured during the ejection, never flew again. The second prototype, however, was a success, proving for all practical purposes that the visibility to radar it showed at most low-intensities nebulous radar spike that was nearly indistinguishable on a radar scope from background noise until the aircraft was well within a ground missile's minimum launch range. Only the massive airborne antenna, the Boeing E3 Sentry AWACS, and some ground-based low-frequency and high-frequency radars had success deflecting it, uh, detecting it, but because of their large antenna, the latter of the two are unsuitable for battlefield use. Because the airplane offered virtually immunity to radar, the Air Force quickly underwrote the production of full-scale development of the FSD aircraft. The new design reflected lessons learned and during the Havlu program. The engine power was increased, the inlets and exhausts were baffled and soundproofed to minimize noise emitting. Instead of a typical jet turbine, a high-pitched whine said to set dogs barking before the plane appeared in the sky. The prototype's inward canted fins had actually acted reflected the exhaust heat emissions, so the FSD fins were canted outward in a V-shaped butterfly tail. The demands of combat, as modified by the requirements of stealth, dictated the rest of the redesign. 
Contrary to most military aircraft designs of the 1950s, the airplane would carry no radar, since even an inactive radar would act as a reflector. Even the normal uh, even the normal radio antennas that adorned conventional staff were made to retract beneath the airplane's skin when not in use. Also, since external fuel tanks and weapons would adversely affect the plane's RCS, all fuel and munitions would be carried internally. The limited capacity and inboard fuel tanks could over uh, could be overcome with aerial refueling. Instead of carrying tons of unconventional bombs, the plane would carry only one or two laser-guided smart bombs, essentially compromise the seek of a seeker head and fins attached to a standard dumb bomb. Smart bombs home in invisible infrared laser shined up target aircraft, uh, attacking aircraft. The result is a circular error probable. CEP, the circular distance around the target in which the bomb is likely to strike, measured in inches. The Air Force was anxious for a new aircraft, having temporarily lost its new Boeing B-1 bomber to government cutbacks. Naturally, speculation in the aviation press centered around its full-sized advanced technology bomber. The new airplane might be have escaped attention altogether, except that in the 1980s White House intentionally alluded to its existence. Whether this was an election near ploy remains open to question. The new aircraft, then popularly known as a stealth fighter rather than the stealth bomber, was to become a hot aviation topic over the next decade. Oh, that's funny, because that's I thought there was two of them. I was so confused about that when I was a kid. The new airplane was given a new code name, Senior Trend, as well as deceptive designation of F-117. The American Century series of fighter aircraft beginning with the North American F-100 Super Sabre supposedly ended with the General Dynamics, Dynamics F-111 Aardvark in October 1962, the interest of the cross-service commonality, the Department of Defense began renumbering its combat aircraft, starting with the F-1. After the Northrop YF-17 came the North Northrop uh, F-20 Tiger Shark. Aviation journalists naturally guessing the stealth fighter was designated F-19 to fill in the number voiding. The original... The origin of the F-117 designation is somewhat of a mystery, but it began turning up at Lockheed's documents regarding senior trend, and the Air Force saw no reason to change it. At the very least, it enabled the government spokesman to plausibly deny the existence of an F-19. All right, I'm going to stop right there, and I'll continue later uh, on the history of the F-117. All right. I'll probably jump into some headlines in the next podcast, but uh, I don't want to quite leave this one yet, so I'll be uploading on it. Okay, thanks for listening, everybody, to the Indiscriminate News Network. That was a little introduction to the F-117 Nighthawk. All right, thank you. Make sure to subscribe and to follow wherever you're listening. Bye.